Hello and welcome to episode number 151 of Turkey Book Talk. Thank you for listening. I'm William Armstrong here in Istanbul. And in this episode, we hear from Giancarlo Casale, Chair of Early Modern Mediterranean History at the European University Institute and Associate Professor of History at the University of Minnesota. He is editor and translator of Prisoner of the Infidels, the memoir of an Ottoman Muslim in 17th century Europe, which has just been published by University of California Press. The book is both absolutely fascinating and very entertaining. It's a memoir written by Osman of Timisoara, who was an Ottoman Muslim captured in the Balkans and taken to Habsburg territory as a slave from 1688 to 1699. This edition that's just been published is actually the first ever English edition to appear, which is amazing because, as I say, it's terrific. What a loss to previous generations. Before we get started with the interview, remember that you can find our entire archive of interviews going back to 2015 at turkeybooktalk.com. Also remember that you can support the podcast by becoming a Turkey Book Talk member via Patreon. Joining as a Turkey Book Talk member gets you various extras, including an exclusive discount of 30% of the price of all books published in IB Taurus and Bloomsbury's excellent Turkey and Ottoman History series. Every one of the hundreds of Turkey Ottoman History titles published by IB Taurus Bloomsbury is available to Turkey Book Talk members at a whopping 30% discount. Members get a special code to use at the online checkout and and that deal is valid for all physical books, pre-orders and e-books. Also, if you'd rather read these interviews than listen to them, then you're in luck because Turkey Book Talk members receive a PDF transcript of every interview via email as soon as the episode is published. You also get PDF transcripts of the entire archive of Turkey Book Talk interviews when you sign up including many extras that have not previously been published on the podcast. Members also receive an archive of over 200 book reviews written by myself, ranging from Turkish and international fiction and poetry to history, politics and journalism related to the Middle East and Europe. And finally, I also send links to a couple of articles related to the subject of each episode in the email that I send out to members upon publication, which is obviously ideal if you want to delve a bit deeper. To become a member, just pledge $3, €3 or £2.50 per episode via Turkey Book Talk's Patreon page. If you're feeling particularly generous and want to pledge more, then of course you'll be more than welcome. But so long as you pledge $3, €3 or £2.50 or above per episode, membership is entirely at your own discretion. There are no prior commitments or strings attached. You'll be free to sign off whenever you want. But now let's get on with our conversation with Giancarlo Casale. Before we get into the nitty-gritty of Osman of Timisoara's 12 years in Habsburg captivity, I started by asking Giancarlo to simply introduce Osman of Timisoara to us. Where was he from and what was his early life like? Sure. Osman of Timisoara was, as you might guess, from um, a place called Timisoara, which is now in the far western part of Romania, very close to the border with Serbia and Hungary. And it was, in the 17th century, really the heart of the Ottoman Balkans. We know not so much about his early life, but uh, we know that he came from a family that was a military family. His father was a local officer in the Janissary Corps, had originally immigrated to Timisoara from from Belgrade. His mother was also from Serbia, from a, a place a little bit further to the north called Slankamen. He was orphaned as a relatively young child because both his mother and his father died when he was only about nine years old. 
Fortunately, his father was relatively affluent and made provisions for he and his brother and sisters. He was raised by his older sister and his brother-in-law, who was also a military man and a protege of his father's. And then, in his teenage years, the war with the Habsburg Empire broke out. The Ottoman siege of Vienna in 1683, and then what is known in um, European history as the Great Turkish War began. Osman he joined the local militia. He started fighting in some local skirmishes around Timishwara. And then uh, on a fateful day in uh, 1688, he was uh, given command of a small force that was supposed to take some pay to the garrison of a nearby town, Lipova. And it just happened that he arrived as the main Habsburg army was about to besiege Lipova. And um, he fell prisoner after the surrender of the city a few days later. And he ended up spending 12 years in captivity and he had a series of different masters. But he was obviously just one of thousands, tens of thousands of Ottoman captives in similar circumstances uh, in the 17th and 18th centuries. But uh, he was unique. So he wrote it all down later in this remarkable memoir that we're talking about. And in this memoir, he describes a level of suffering and punishment that is really quite shocking. In the first half of the text, it almost reads like the book of Job. You know, it's just a catalogue of misfortune and suffering. And um, some of the episodes seem almost fantastic. So it's almost hard to take some of them seriously. Was, do we know if there was a degree of exaggeration at work or poetic license? Do we have any idea about whether the, these were sort of exaggerating conventions that he was using or whether he was very closely uh, narrating the truth? It's a very good question. And I think one of the interesting things for me about Osman's text First of all, the fact that he decided to write his life story at all is a very extraordinary thing. Really, nobody had ever done that before in Ottoman Turkish. And so anytime somebody writes an autobiography, but especially if they're writing the first one ever in their language, you always are curious about to what extent they are understanding it as just a, a factual narrative, just setting down, the, getting the record straight, and to what extent there is some kind of embellishment going on. I think in Osman's case, I would definitely characterize his memoir as a work of literature in addition to um, a historical document. And there are many instances in which you can see that he's really going out of his way to make his reader understand something more than just the story of his life. And so I think in some instances, those early accounts of the, the brutality that he is suffering, we, we do have to read those as, as literary accounts to a certain extent. That said, I don't think there's any question that the level of brutality that soldiers in the Habsburg Ottoman War at the end of the 17th century inflicted upon one another was quite shocking. And, and in fact, Osman is trying to convey in part that he, he too was shocked. This is, uh, I had a little bit of a back and forth with my copy editor, in fact, when I used the word shocking in one of my footnotes. And, uh, and he said, well, maybe it was shocking for us, but it wouldn't have been shocking for people at the time. I completely disagree. I think in many of the instances that Osman is encountering, he's trying to convey his own shock at, uh, at the brutality that uh, he's experiencing and also that he's witnessing. One of the things I never quite understood is the exact circumstances of his captivity, because at times he seems relatively free, actually, um, particularly later on. He earns money even, uh, mm -hmm. and he's even described carrying a sword around, which is not yeah. exactly the kind of um, typical slave uh, idea that we have. And uh, he's also free to go around Vienna, it seems, uh, within limits. And he goes drinking, he describes you know, carousing in taverns and whatnot. But then at other times, particularly earlier in the narrative, he gets hurled into dungeons for months on end, barely eating anything. 
and the punishment he, he he's tortured and it's it's dreadful really could you just uh, illuminate this strange contrast this rather schizophrenic nature mm-hmm. of his captivity yes yeah, so for people who study early modern Ottoman history, this is actually one of the really important themes. Slavery is is very prevalent in the Ottoman Empire in the 15th, 16th, 17th centuries, but it functions in a way that to us seems exactly as you described, schizophrenic. There's no getting around the brutality of capturing somebody and enslaving them. And yet in, in the Ottoman Empire, it's also very clear that slavery is a kind of an institution of social mobility. In the 16th century, for example, all of the most important people in the Ottoman military elite, the governors, the admirals, generals, are all people who were originally enslaved, either as the, from the Devshir May or by being taken captive. And they're still technically slaves. In fact, the Kapukulder are slaves, and yet they're the most powerful people in the empire. So that is something that we know from Ottoman history. I think one of the really thing, surprising things about Osman's account, however, is that he actually shows us that there was something pretty similar going on in the Habsburg territories in the 17th century, in the sense that it's, it's very clear that Osman's masters, particularly his last master and mistress in Vienna, who were very, very rich, powerful Habsburg aristocrats, they really wanted him to become their client. They wanted him to convert to Christianity, and then they wanted to promote him and make him, a, a, you know, a sort of a representative of their household in a way that was very analogous to the Ottoman system. And that's something that actually scholars have really only very recently be, begun to realize, that there was a, a kind of a system in the Habsburg lands of emulating the Ottoman model of slavery, which is completely different in a lot of ways from the model of slavery that we know of from, for example, early North America. Yeah, he even becomes a pastry chef at one point in Vienna, which is, <laughs> yeah. a, I mean, not not what I was expecting to read. <laughs> I mean, he actually was already a baker. This is one of his many talents, right? One, there's an episode where he's starving. He's you know with a, a bunch of invalids and prisoners of war in the Balkans. There's nothing to eat, and they cut off their bread ration, and the only thing that anybody has is some flour. And it turns out that he knows how to make poacha. And so he starts making poacha for all of the Austrian soldiers, and they start paying him with a little share of their flour. And he's, he accumulates extra flour that way through his knowledge as a baker. And it serves him well, because when he eventually goes to Vienna, he transforms that interest in baking into uh, being apprenticed with a master pâtissier from, from Paris. And throughout the text, he uh, describes these very kind of tantalizing romantic trysts with men and women. And he kind of le- often leaves them hanging, basically, where he, he sort of says, oh, yes, I didn't do anything. I managed to control myself. You know, the reader is obviously very suspicious about all of those. But uh, that's one of the themes that goes throughout the whole book. Romantic trysts with people, you know, he, he finds them on his meandering path. And then he kind of just is very coy about it. Yes, there, as you say, there, there are very parallel experiences that, that he recounts with both men and women. There's this moment where he's asked to sleep over with a teenage boy who's a, works in a customs house. There isn't any other place for, for Osman to stay. So he stays with this teenage boy. And that's a, a fascinating scene for all kinds of different reasons. It's also because he's explaining the experience of being exoticized by this boy who starts to say, oh, I've heard of all of the perverted lusts of the Turks and wants him to tell, describe all of the sexual acts that the, that the Turkish people engage in that he's heard speak of. 
And then there's this extremely ambiguous phrase in that moment of the text where Osman says, another man, uh, a sodomite, would have found it impossible to resist because the boy was indeed very attractive. Then he says, Ama gunahamaz zuhur itmidi, which could mean, because he always speaks of himself in the, in the plural, biz, when he's talking about himself, it could mean our sin did not become manifest, meaning we didn't actually consummate our desire for each other by engaging in a sexual act. Or it also could just mean my embarrassment did not become visible in the sense that the boy didn't notice that I was aroused. Perfect example of how he's using this very ambiguous kind of a language to leave us hanging about what exactly he's talking about there. So 12 years after he was taken prisoner, he found his way to freedom. And he narrates in the book this very nerve-wracking, nail-biting escape back to Ottoman lands. And as I understand it, that came after a certain easing of tension between the Ottoman and Habsburg empires after the Treaty of Karlovitz in 1699. Could you just talk about what the historical circumstances were uh, of his freedom and how exactly did he eventually get away? Because he wasn't just released, he, he actually escaped. Yes. So he clearly, at that point in his narrative, something that had become a great advantage for him, which is that he was um, associated with a very powerful aristocratic family, which gave him an elevated status during his years in Vienna, all of a sudden became a very serious problem because his masters clearly didn't want to let him go. And so after the peace treaty of 1699, it was very clear that one of the conditions of the, of the agreement between the Ottoman and Habsburg states were that enslaved prisoners of war like Osman would be able to go home. In his case, he doesn't feel like he can ask his master for permission to go. He doesn't think that his master will grant him permission. And so he decides that he has to try to escape by forging documents and by pretending to be a converted Christian and making his way down to the border. And so it's a very ambiguous situation that he finds himself in. And that's kind of the crescendo. If, if you want to read his memoir as a literary text, that's really where everything builds is that almost unbearable ambiguity where he is enslaved by his high status, where he is supposed to be allowed to return home, but cannot precisely because he's valued by his owners and has such a deep effective relationship with his owners that he doesn't, they won't let him go. And in, in fact, one of the climaxes of that whole story is he is at the border. Time is running out. He's under extreme pressure. He can't sleep. He sort of falls into a half, a half sleep and he has a dream. He's walking near the border. He's being hounded by dogs. To escape the dogs, he tries to climb up the mountain, the big mountain in between the Ottoman and Habsburg territory. At the top of the mountain, there's a palace and he goes into the palace and inside the palace is his mistress, the, the wife of his owner, all by herself. And she turns to him and, and she says, Osman, don't worry. We miss you too. And then he wakes up and he interprets this as a sign that he will be successful in returning home. And I mean, you can read so many different levels in, into that dream, the guilt that he feels of having abandoned this woman that he had affection for and that was her, uh, that, who was his protector, but at the same time feeling that somehow she's still looking out for him, even though he's just about to make the final betrayal and cross back into Ottoman territory. So those are one of those moments where you really see that he's doing something much more than just telling a story. He's, it's a profound meditation on belonging and the impossibility of ever, ever really going home after an experience like the one that he's had. Now, in the introduction, you talk about 
Prisoner of Infidels being a work of major historical and literary importance, a major literary milestone. Indeed, the first book-length autobiography ever to be written in the Ottoman Turkish language. You say, quote, Osman created something considerably more innovative and ambitious than a narrative of captivity, a complete book-length account of a life lived in other words, an autobiography in the fullest sense. This was something that no Ottoman Muslim had ever done before, neither Sultan nor Grand Vizier nor Victorious General, much less a provincial soldier and former captive such as Osman. In this sense, Osman was a literary pioneer. That's quite a big claim. Uh, well, I guess there are a few other texts that are somewhat analogous to Osman's. There are certainly some other captivity narratives that were written by Ottoman captives in the 16th and 17th centuries, but they're very short and very kind of reductive compared to Osman's account. There are some really interesting travel narratives that are quite autobiographical. A lot of people may have some familiarity with Evliya Çelebi's Seyahat Name, for example, which certainly has a lot of autobiographical aspects to it. But what Osman does really is something quite new in the sense that he isn't only telling us his experience as a captive. As our conversation actually started with the first pages of his book, he tells us about his parents, about his early childhood very briefly, but that's clearly the way he's thinking about the book is starting at the very beginning of his life. And then after he returns to Ottoman territory, that isn't the end of his story either. He, he actually writes this all down about 25 years after his return to Ottoman territory, and he fills in the last parts of his life story as well, brings us all the way down, in fact, to the moment in which he's writing his memoir in a kind of a exile in Istanbul. So that is really something that is quite new. And it's it's also, it isn't just the genre that's new in Osman's case. It's also the language, all kinds of things about the way that he tells stories, about the way that he brings everything together, the combination of literary and historical elements in his writing. There isn't anything really that anyone has ever done before. And it raises the question of how he could have come up with such a, an original kind of a text. One of the questions that I explore a little bit in my introduction is the possibility that he may have been reading some similar things in German, because we know that he learned to read German quite well during his time in Austria. Possibly he was emulating something that he had read uh, during his time as a captive in Vienna, but we really just don't know. And it's also written in this remarkably straightforward, simple, direct and even modern prose style. It's very striking. And that obviously contrasts very much with the more typical, perhaps poetic, courtly uh, literary style that's more familiar from this period of Ottoman history. Absolutely. I mean, when when we read it in English, it obviously the appeal is that it's so accessible and it's so easy to read. But one of the things that I also was sort of wrestling with as a translator is that for somebody who's reading it in Turkish, it's almost a disorienting experience to be reading something from the beginning of the 18th century that is so, the narrative voice is so modern because we're so used to thinking about Ottoman narration as being very Baroque, steeped in sort of convoluted metaphors and all kinds of Persian and Arabic grammatical constructions and vocabulary. That's kind of the standard of eloquence that prevailed at the time. So when we don't see that when we when we read a text that is so accessible it almost disorients us as a translator there wasn't really a way for me to reproduce that feeling exactly but i did try to at least convey it by explaining it in my introduction i just wonder on that point were there any other difficulties or challenges in the translation of the text and also i wondered is the text in this volume the whole thing or is it an edited or abridged version or selection 
Yeah, this is the whole thing. And mysteriously, this is the only, there's only one autographed copy of the manuscript that survives from the 18th century. And uh, it is preserved actually in the, in the British Museum. So we don't have any evidence that anybody ever read this in the Ottoman Empire in the 18th century. So we, we know almost nothing about the kind of the afterlife of this text among Osman's contemporaries. I mean, I've never translated a, a full-length text like this before. It does sometimes have the flavor of a kind of a rough draft. And one, one of the interesting challenges that I faced also was the challenge of different languages. Osman frequently actually directly speaks when he's reporting uh, direct dialogue. He, he does so in other languages. He knows Serbo-Croatian. He can speak a little bit of Hungarian. He knows a little bit of Vlach or uh, what we now call Romanian. He intersperses his dialogue with actually direct quotations from all of these languages in a way that is also a bit disorienting. I, I have the feeling sometimes that he's trying to convey his own sense of being disoriented in certain situations where many different languages are being spoken. So in the end, I decided to not actually not translate those, to just leave them in the original language in the text. Now, he wrote this book many years, actually, after he returned to Ottoman territory. And he actually skips over what he did in the years after his return in just a few pages at the end of the book. But uh, he actually continued to live a very interesting life because obviously he'd learned German and all these other languages you mentioned there. And he became a high level diplomatic translator and interpreter. And he involved in that post, he met various Habsburg dignitaries. Just talk about what we know about uh, his life after he regained his freedom and returned to Ottoman territory. Well, we, we know a lot of what we know about his life is from his own life story, but he also wrote several other works. They have not received as much attention as, um, as his memoir, but he was a quite a prolific author, especially during those few years that he was in Istanbul in the, in the 1720s. He wrote a, um, history of the Holy Roman Empire, which was based, it seems, primarily on German sources. This is something that was really new in Ottoman history. There wasn't really a genre of writing histories of foreign dynasties. So this is another example of Osman sort of experimenting with really pioneering new genres of writing. He wrote a kind of a compilation of his own correspondence as a diplomat and a kind of a, a workbook in which he recounted his own, a little bit like a, a CV in which he puts together all of his different diplomatic missions and the documentation from those missions. There's definitely a very interesting study to be done of all of those other writings by Osman, which I haven't done, uh, but I'm hoping that if somebody takes an interest in him because of his translation, maybe there will be a, a sort of a new line of scholarship that can be inspired because he is a very interesting figure and he, he has a lot of writings that really haven't been explored. Possibly the most interesting thing about his biography, which is something that was discovered very recently by a colleague of mine, David Dopaso, is that after Osman finished his uh, memoir, he actually returned to Vienna, this time as a part of the delegation of the first kind of permanent diplomatic representation of the Ottoman Empire in Vienna. He ended up staying there for at least five or six years. So this is another thing that lends an extra level of sort of ambiguity to his life story as just as he was writing the story of his redemption from slavery in the Habsburg lands, he's actually preparing to voluntarily return to the Habsburg lands and to live there for much of the rest of his adult life. 
So he wrote the book in 1724, I believe, and that was 25 years after he actually returned to Ottoman lands. So do we know why it took him so long to write the book? And could you just talk a bit about the kind of speculation about what he actually wanted to achieve with it? Yes, it's a, an excellent and in some sense an unanswerable question. But I think one of the ways to really understand that is the 1720s, especially the early 1720s, is a, a time of, in general, a lot of cultural experimentation in Ottoman Istanbul. Osman, it's important to remember, had never really been to Istanbul before 1720. He had been in the Habsburg lands, and then he had been back in the Ottoman Balkans. He was a diplomat in the frontier zones between the Ottoman and Habsburg territories. Then, after another war that broke out and ended badly for the Ottomans, he went to Istanbul because Timisoara had been conquered at that point by the Habsburgs, and so he had no longer any home there. And he found himself in Istanbul in the 1720s, which is, you know, a period that some Ottoman historians refer to as the Tulip Age, which is this sort of moment of cultural experimentation that is really the way to understand what would have enabled Osman to write something like this and expect that people might have been interested in it. Just to give you some other examples of things that were going on at this time, there was this Ottoman delegation to Paris by this very famous figure named Yumusikiz Mehmed Celebi, and he also wrote an account of his year, but he spent about a year in France, very ethnographic, describing all kinds of different aspects of life in France. It was like a Osman's account, something that was really new. There wasn't any any kind of a previous example of diplomatic writing that had that ethnographic character. And um, I think Osman was really sort of aware of this. He was in the same circle of people. And he was trying to sort of experiment as an author, but also to sort of show that he was able to participate in this new evolving diplomatic culture, this kind of awareness of the world, this kind of worldliness that was also erudite and experimental in a, in a literary sense. And um, I mean, if you compare Yirmisekiz Mehmet Celebi's writing, is only one example. There are actually a, several of these seyahatnames, these ambassadors' accounts for that same little window of time. There's one about Iran. There's one about Russia. Russia, there's another one that's about Austria. And if you if you look at those, in fact, the narrative style of those texts too is it's very simple, it's very direct, it's very accessible. It's not personal in quite the same way that Osman's is. And it's all also sort of part of a diplomatic mission rather than a, a personal life story. But absolutely, you can see that there is this sort of collective move towards a new kind of narration, which is also sort of about describing the world, creating a kind of an arc of different places and different Ottoman individuals who have experience with those places, giving them their perspectives on how to understand them. So yes, it's, it is a kind of an Occidentalist project. And as far as I gather, it wasn't published at the time, and Osman himself remained pretty unknown. And the text, as you said before, it only survived in a single manuscript, which was written in Osman's own hand, and that is now in the British Museum in, uh, in London. So no copies are known to have been made at the time, either while he was alive or in the decades after his death. And there are no known references to his work by either Ottoman or Western authors for over a century after he completed it. So to conclude here, I wonder if you could just talk about the afterlives of the text, because it has now become wi very widely translated. But at the time, of course, that was a bit of a slow burner and it took a over a century to become known. Do we know anything about how it was received at the time he wrote it? And also just talk about what kind of influence it had and how it was rediscovered effectively in uh, subsequent centuries. Yes. So 
we would love to know, I would love to know something about how it was received, who Osman exactly wrote it for, whom he hoped to show it to. We don't know anything about that at all. There is actually a very long tradition of great historical and literary works that nobody at the time read. So another very good example from the same period of Ottoman history is Evliya Chelebi's Seyahatname, which is sort of one of the main sources for anybody who's interested in doing ethnographic history or cultural history or religious history of basically any part of the Ottoman Empire uh, in the 17th century. It's this massive 10-volume travel narrative, amazing, engaging writing, incredibly erudite, incredibly entertaining. Nobody ever read it, as far as we know. It was only in a manuscript copy that was, again, discovered at the end of the 19th century, very much like Osman's text and sort of now has become a, a standard work. So that's uh, that's something that I think a lot of us who are interested in the cultural history of the Ottoman Empire, we, we really wrestle with is there's often this disconnect between the kinds of things that, that we find interesting and the kinds of things that people at the time regularly copied and circulated and shared with one another. One of the reasons why I wanted to do this translation in English is in part just to make the, the source accessible, but also really to re-emphasize this idea that this is a serious work. It's a serious intellectual work. It's a serious literary work. And it hasn't really been treated as such until now. I think in part because of the title in Turkish. The title in Turkish is Gyavurların Esiri, the prisoner of the Gyavurs. Gyavur being uh, a kind of an off-color ethnic slur for a non-Muslim in, in modern Turkish. It was given this name originally because that was also the title of the first German edition. It was, it was published in German translation before it came out in Turkish. I think that title and also the sort of way in which the text was originally translated and marketed, it gave people a sense that this was sort of a curiosity or um, just a basic, a basic historical source, maybe with some salacious details, but that wasn't really something that we should be taking seriously as a text. And, and I really, uh, I disagree with that so profoundly that I decided I would translate the whole thing to try to give people a different perspective. That was Giancarlo Casale. Many thanks to him for joining for episode number 151. Remember, if you enjoy Turkey Book Talk, you can support it by joining as a member on Patreon. Membership gets you that 30% discount on all Turkey Ottoman history books published by IB Taurus and Bloomsbury. Transcripts of every interview, transcripts of the entire archive of interviews, access to an archive of over 200 book reviews written by me, and links via email to articles and other content related to the subject of each episode. For all that, just pledge $3, €3 or £2.50 per episode via Turkey Book Talk's Patreon account. Also do rate or review Turkey Book Talk on whatever podcast platform you use. Follow via our website turkeybooktalk.com or via Twitter or via our Facebook page or all of them. And I always enjoy hearing from listeners. So do send any recommendations, feedback or abuse to williamjohnarmstrong at gmail.com. But until our next episode of Turkey Book Talk in a couple of weeks, thank you very much for listening. Thank you.